0: Recovery Elevator, episode 57.
1: And I really believe that part of our recovery is to learn how to sit with those emotions and to accept that they're there and not push them away and to move into them and show ourselves some self-compassion and loving kindness when we're feeling that way.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for one year, six months, and 15 days. On today's podcast, we've got Penny. She's from Sydney, Australia, and she's been sober since October 19th, 2015. Before we get any further in today's episode, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. Let me tell you, being hung over on a 12 hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it, RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text Sober Travel No Space to 44222. Again, text Sober Travel Without a Space to 44222. I got the idea for today's podcast episode from another podcast. It's called The Radio Lab, and the episode is called The Fix. A friend of my brother's sent me this via Facebook Messenger and just sent the link. There was no text, just a link to this podcast episode started listening and immediately knew why my brother's friend had sent this to me. The episode was about addiction. But as I continued to listen, I was bummed. I was disappointed. I almost got a little bit angry. Angry at the fact that there was no text in the Facebook message from my brother's friend. It was almost like he was trying to tell me something. Because 95% of that podcast episode talks about how there are quick fixes to alcoholism. I know from personal experiences, I have sought out these quick fixes. I've looked high and low. I've looked under couch cushions to find the answer to my drinking problem. I've sat in physicians' chairs and asked them for pills to cure my alcoholism. And for nearly 30 minutes, this podcast episode nearly convinces me that there are quick fixes. I'm starting to rethink things. And then Gary starts chirping, and I recognize his voice. Listeners, Gary is my internal addiction. That I have personified. Gary starts chatting. He's like, yeah, Paul, you hear that? We can take a pill. This is going to be great. Within two seconds, I had already thought of an idea that debunked this whole quick fix deal. Gary was like, yeah, we can take a pill. And then maybe, you know, after taking the pill successfully for a month, we can uh, not take the pill and, and try to drink one night. But, you know, if we have problems, we'll just go back on the pill the next day. So after the 30 minute mark in the podcast episode, I was just like, wait for it. Wait for it wait for it, wait for it, oh, here it is. Basically, at the end of the episode, all of the patients who are on these quick fix pills and we'll get into what they are exactly later, they end up in the same spot. The reason why, this is one complicated subject. So baffling, it would remind me of the time my freshman year in high school when I was accidentally placed in the wrong math class. No joke, lasted about a week there was no TI-83 that could get me out of that problem. So before I continue any further in this podcast episode, let me be clear. The American Medical Association classified alcoholism and addiction as a disease in 1956. Let me pull out that TI-83. Give me one second. That's 60 years ago. So a debate discussing if alcoholism and addiction are simply moral failings, personal calamities, a weakness of character, that's a debate That should never be had because people a hell of a lot smarter than me have classified this as a disease. Having said that, let's move forward. So at about seven minutes in the podcast report, Amy O'Leary, fed up with her boyfriend's addiction to alcohol, asks, wouldn't it be great if alcoholics could just take a pill to deal with the problem? Simply by saying, if you're not getting as much enjoyment from the drinks, would you keep drinking? Believe it or not, these pills have been around for a long time but they're not prescribed with the frequency as you would think. Simply taking a pill eliminates your cravings, bingo. Sounds like a quick fix to a very complex situation. So let's talk about some of the drugs mentioned in the fix. We've got Topamax. Topamax is an anticonvulsant mood-stabilizing medication that can help reduce alcohol cravings. Another one they talk about is Baclofen. Baclofen is a muscle relaxant found to reduce cocaine and alcohol cravings. Next up, they talk about naltrexone. Naltrexone is an opioid antagonist that can help reduce the desire for alcohol and lessen alcohol's positive effects. Next up, they talk about an anabuse called disifilram. An anabuse is nothing new. It's been around since 1951. Studies show that it reduces the craving for alcohol and reduces the risk of relapse. They also talk about camprol, zofran, chantix, and gabapentin. Now, gabapentin is a medication currently approved for treating seizures and nerve pain. Studies show that gabapentin might alleviate alcohol cravings, which is believed to involve GABA activation in a specific part of the brain, the amygdala. What do these actually do and how do they work? Well, let's talk about naltrexone. This drug blocks the part of the brain that feels pleasure when you use alcohol. When these areas of the brain are blocked, you feel less of a need to drink alcohol because it really doesn't have the same effect. What an abuse does, it actually causes an extremely unpleasant reaction when you drink alcohol. This would be similar to what the customers of Chipotle felt in 2015. To summarize, if you're not getting as much enjoyment out of the drinks, then the idea is you're not going to drink as much. Yeah, what if the next time I heard How's It Gonna Be by Third Eye Blind, rainbows and angels didn't appear in my ears? I probably wouldn't listen as much. Well, according to Dr. Mark Willenbring, who runs a medicine-based treatment in St. Paul, Minnesota, says there are drugs out there. In fact, there's a lot of them. Most of these drugs will block the cravings towards the drugs and alcohol because they block the high. Then in the episode, they start asking questions about, well, why haven't these drugs been prescribed more often? In fact, it's quite infrequent these drugs are prescribed. I've never taken Antabuse and I've never taken Naltrexone, mostly because it's never been prescribed to me. I'm sure I would have gobbled those down like Flintstone vitamins had they been prescribed to me. One culprit to the reason why these drugs are not being prescribed with the frequency that you would think is the 12-step program, AA. It talks about how AA has created a large distinction from the medical community and alcoholics. After the cure of tuberculosis near the end of World War II, there were large medical wards that remained empty. They were approached by the founders of AA who said, look, you've got these large areas, these large buildings with all these empty beds You guys haven't quite cured the alcohol thing yet. Why don't you give us a shot? And so thus started 80 years of separation in the medical community regarding alcoholism. They also mentioned a stat that I've also referenced in this podcast is that there are over 140 medical schools in the United States of America and only 14 of them have a single course on addiction. That's addiction in general. Alcoholism might be covered in a single day. Good luck even scratching the surface on that one. In my opinion, that was a great strategic move by the founders of AA to take over those empty tuberculosis wards. Doctors, they had no answers at that point. In 2016, I've talked with doctors about this. They still have no answers. But I remember reading somewhere that in the 1910s or 20s, there was an actual box on a medical form that said hopeless alcoholic. No joke, in 1925, mine would read something like this asthmatic allergic to horses struggles with anxiety depression adhd and hopeless alcoholic check 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 not at least 716 dollars we do not accept medicaid and no we will not validate for parking so at least we've made some medical progress in the last 80 years i've seen those medical sheets in the box for hopeless alcoholic it's not there yay for progression Another criticism of AA is that they mention six out of 12 steps in AA mention God, and there's a reference to God on nearly every single page in the big book. My take on that is they leave out God is of your own understanding. God could be a spiritual being. For me, it's a power greater than myself. I got an email from someone last week saying that's why they have never been to AA, because they can't get over the God hurdle. Oh my God, get over it. They also referenced a study of a hundred people at an AA meeting on January 1st. They went back to that same meeting January 1st, 365 days later and found that five out of 100 of those people were still in those chairs. Let me pull up my TI-83 one more time. Give me a second, 5%. Yes, that would be in the single digits. Interesting study, but I mentioned in other podcast episodes, January 1st is a terrible day to get sober. People who are waiting till January 1st to quit sober, there's no way they're going to just surrender on January 1st. Like that day is more special than any other day in the entire year. And also that study does not take into account if people move, if they switched home groups or or they switched programs. They went to smart recovery or something else. So interesting study, but I don't think that gives a good reflection of what the success rate of AA really is. So up to about the 32-minute mark, they're making a very eloquently stated compelling case that there is a quick fix, a shortcut for alcoholism. There's a guy named Billy who firsthand experienced the devastation and the pain that alcoholism can create. Then he was prescribed some of these quick fix drugs and life turned around. Billy talks about a time when he had a couple of drinks and then he just set it down? Being able to do just that is something I've lost countless hours of mind productivity time thinking about how to accomplish just that. And after Billy says that, the doctor says, so would you say you're cured? And of course, they cued some kitschy music, said the medical industry is going to be flipped upside down. They just cured one of the most perplexing problems that's ever faced mankind. But like I said, wait for it. Wait for it. Here it is. About a month later, Billy comes back in and he talks about a long weekend. How his Gary, his addiction, said to himself, hey, we got a long weekend. Let's not take the pill. Billy drank again. And he says he missed feeling like himself. That interview was cut short, but then they did a follow-up interview another month later. And simply the tone of his voice has changed. I'm fairly convinced Billy's crying. You can hear it in his voice that life is going in one direction, and it's not up. Billy talks about when he's sober, it's difficult to think back on some of the best memories he's ever had in life, and recalling, they all involved alcohol. I experienced that same thing, Billy. Thinking back on the best memories of my life, it was like a Where's Waldo picture. I'm like, man, that was such a great time. But if you think about it, you're like, oh, there's Waldo and Jose Cuervo. Alcohol was definitely part of that memory. Yep, there he is. So here's what most people miss about what AA really does. AA, it doesn't really address the drinking. It addresses the thinking. It's how to deal with those uncomfortable feelings. Air quotes, life on life's terms. The feelings you feel from the time your eyelids open to the time you go to bed at night. Those feelings can be pretty uncomfortable at times. Alcohol is just a symptom of the thinking. So after Billy's third interview, he says he's got a new hope. If there is one common personality trait we all possess, is we don't give up. We're still hopeful. Billy is on a new medication called gabapentin. I'm not Gary's doctor or a medical professional, but damn it Gary, a pill is not the answer to this thing. But Billy does mention that he's going back to meetings, which is a relief to hear. So with 3 minutes left in the Fix episode, the hosts say, "Look, this is a deep issue. These quick fix pills, they seem to only be addressing one part. You might've heard me say this before on this podcast, but alcoholism, it's a three part disease, physical, mental, and spiritual. The pill really is only addressing the physical symptoms. How in the fuck do we deal with the other two components? Well, if you've listened to the previous 56 episodes, you've got a good idea. So now let's hear from our interviewee,
1: Penny. Penny, how are you? Hi, Paul. I'm great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so good to be here with you. And we had to work with the time zone on this one. Where are you sitting at right now?
1: I am at work. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'm just really excited to be here. So it's great. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but literally like on the other side of the world.
1: That's it. What time is it there?
0: I got uh, 5.07 p.m.
1: Oh, good. So it's not too early or in the middle of the night for you. That's good.
0: (laughs) No, we're good here. Penny, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober?
1: Well, I'm really excited to say from last week, four months. And according to my recovery elevator sobriety tracker, probably today would be four months and four days.
0: Congratulations on that. That's big time. Now, Penny, I'm curious, and I'm sure listeners are as well, give a little bit of background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, do you have a family, and what kind of stuff do you like to do for fun?
1: Okay, well, originally I'm from Melbourne, Victoria in Australia, so I live in Australia, but now I'm living in Sydney. I've probably been in Sydney for about 22 years now. And um, I'm 48 and I've been married to the same wonderful man for nearly 20 years this August. And I have three children, a son who is 18 and two girls. One is 13 and one is 16. And my 13-year-old is on the autism spectrum. And she also has an expressive and receptive language disorder that's in the severe range. ADHD and a mild to moderate cognitive delays. Our household gets very chaotic, but very busy.
0: I got the ADHD thing going on over here, Penny. So I I know a little bit about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, our house gets pretty full on, but she, honestly, she's the most gorgeous, gorgeous girl with the most beautiful soul. So we're very blessed.
0: I don't doubt that for a second. And Penny, let's jump right into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Talk to me about your elevator. Was it over four months ago that you decided to just reach out, touch the button Get off and stop drinking, or is it something that built up over a long period of time, and you're like, You know what? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. What happened?
1: Well, definitely, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but I have to say i've I've probably hit rock bottom a number of times, and um, I think mine mine is a story of addictive behavior, probably from the age of about sixteen. so I actually worked it out the other day and I think I've had about 32 of my 48 years with at least some kind of addictive behaviour in my life. So, you know, I've made a career out of switching the witch for the bitch pretty much. So oscillating between things. Yeah. (laughs) So oscillating, I suppose, between cigarettes, eating disorders, drugs, alcohol, dependency issues, relationships, but alcohol was always my drug of choice. So, yeah, so about more recently, four months ago, I my elevator completely went to the basement. I was sitting on the front porch on a Sunday morning outside our house and it was a beautiful day, but I was just sitting there and I was just crying into my coffee and I just felt miserable, just depressed and anxious. And I had been drinking in moderation for about 12 months after four years of having been sober. And I I just knew I couldn't do it anymore. I just felt miserable. I knew that alcohol was affecting my mood. And it was that thing of always wanting more. I'd limit and monitor what I was having, but I just kept wanting more. And that, for me, was my rock bottom four months ago. I've had worse rock bottoms, <laughs> but um, that's probably probably it in my, my history through childhood, I suppose there was a family history, of family breakdown. I felt really anxious and had a lot of social anxiety. There were lots of feelings of abandonment and rejection. And I had very insecure and dysfunctional attachment to adults in my life, uh, illness. And when I was about 12, I was sexually assaulted by one of my dad's drunk friends who was actually a doctor it wasn't as bad as it could have been but it still had an effect on me and i suppose this just led to years of depression anxiety eating disorders and addictive behaviors just sort of kept going and spinning out of control and alcohol made me feel like i was in control and everything around me was falling apart and it medicated my shame my grief and trauma and low self-worth and was a social lubricant for me, so I was able to mix and feel more confident when I was around people. And it kind of filled a hole that was inside of me for so long, and it just became my best friend. I was always very, very close to my mom, and in December 2004, my mum died, and she had lupus. When I was born, it was pregnancy-induced lupus. so. Over the many, many years, I was often a carer for my mum, probably from the age of about eight or so. And we were a team, her and I. So it was after mum died and and I was not there, but I was in Melbourne when it happened and she'd gone in for heart valve replacement surgery and had five weeks in ICU and I'd sat by her side from like seven in the morning to 11 at night and sometimes just sleeping in the waiting room yeah that was that was really, really hard, and that's when my drinking got really bad just to medicate the pain and and the grief and to try and just escape it somehow. so that's kind of how alcohol really I suppose just took over my life. Uh, I saw no other way uh, I thought I, I was dead inside after she'd gone. it was just sure. yeah.
0: Penny, you did mention medicating to make the pain go away. That is a good segue for this next mm. question. And I'm lucky. I didn't. I had no idea you were a psychologist. And so talk to me with your background of how common that is for people to medicate their pains and make them go away that way. I know I did that. And also how mm. unhealthy it is.
1: Yeah, look, I, I see it a lot in the work that I do with people. And funny, I, I didn't really at the time noticed that for myself and I think that's something I've always struggled with my occupation versus my personal life and some of the mental health concerns that that I've had but I I see it in so many different ways with in particular with the work that I do with adolescents I see a lot of self-harm and things like that that um, adolescents engage in as a means of Controlling or emotional regulation. And it's very, very sad to see. And in adolescence, uh, the alcohol and drug issues that I have come across are more to do with social peer group pressures and those kinds of things. But there are certainly certain girls that I see that come through, or boys that I've seen in the past, who I can see that, you know, it's going to become a problem.
0: Sure. I got a question. So when I. Well, hey, for about a decade, when I had a bad feeling or just a negative emotion, and actually even when it was a good day, but let's just focus on those negative emotions that I don't want to feel, I would drink it away. Do you know where it goes? Like, does it go in like a cellar in my back pocket? Or does it go away <laughs> forever? I, I'm serious because the alcohol would make those problems go away. But like sooner or later, you know, I, I didn't find them anywhere. I didn't find them in the garage or anything like that. But the problems all came back. Like, where do they go?
1: yeah they don't go away paul <laughs> they they hang around and i think they get worse there's nothing worse than waking up hungover and depressed and even more anxious and oh. more miserable and sad and yeah that's that they don't go anywhere they they just sit there and i really believe that part of our recovery is to learn how to sit with those emotions and to accept that they're there and not push them away and to move into them and show ourselves some self-compassion and loving kindness when we're feeling that way. But I can only speak from my perspective, but that would be that I, I didn't do it that way. I just wanted to get rid of them, self-medicate, didn't care what I did to myself to do it at the time. And it didn't end well.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you can comment on this as well. It's, it's kind of, we're always seeking a shortcut, and my shortcut was the booze. But even in like mm. 2010 and 11 and 12, and I had two and a half years of sobriety, I was still seeking shortcuts to make those bad feelings away, whether that came in benzodiazepines, um, shortcuts, even just like, you know, sprinting and running, exercise till I just can't think of anything. But what have you found to be yeah. the most helpful way to make those feelings? go away and i don't even want to use the word go away and i think you might have hinted on it is just sit there and feel them is is that what I'm hearing you say
1: Yeah look i do a lot of mindfulness and i find that works really beautifully and a lot of breathing work when i feel like that just to give myself that space to to open and soften some of those feelings and to help calm them down because we have such a huge physiological response to our emotions we get hijacked by our emotions and our limbic system and it's not until we can calm that down in some way that we can actually access our more executive functioning where we can problem solve and come up with some solutions and kind of be aware of the thoughts that are racing through our head and the negative self-talk and then do something with that but my first port of call that I use for myself as well as teach people is just to breathe and, and a lot of somatic experiencing, so working out where in the body that feeling sits. If it's fear and anxiety, it could be in the, in the tummy. If uh, for some people it might be in the throat or the heart or even in the head. And to just use your breath to breathe into that space, to soften and loosen those feelings and just allow them to let go with the out-breath. And honestly, it's really surprising how well that works and you only need to do that for 10 minutes. Hell, if you've got three minutes, three minutes is better than nothing. Sure. But, it, yeah, it just kind of helps to calm that down and to just learn how to sit with that in without judging it as good or bad and it's about acceptance and then kind of surrendering those feelings and knowing that it's just a part of our humanness. It's part of who we are. We're never going to not feel anxiety or not feel sadness or not feel anger because that's part of what makes us a human being. But it's how well we are able to regulate that for ourselves and make better decisions with regards to how we heal ourselves sure those things yeah and
0: thank you for explaining the mindfulness and the breathing technique because i was gonna ask and again i there was something else i didn't understand you correctly i so i breathe with my silence and i read limerick poems is that what i heard like the Irish no. you <laughs> just pull out a book of limerick poems was that what you said
1: no no oh gosh that's funny breathe into the body so you work out in the body where that pain, or where that feeling of discomfort is, the heaviness from that emotion, and you breathe into that space and kind of allow that emotion to soften and expanding that space, not the emotion. Sure. Well, and I, I'm just joking breathing the, it out. The limerick. Oh, you, poems, but oh, when on, you said something
0: earlier. It was like a limerick system or something. I didn't understand. Oh, that.
1: limbic, limbic. Oh, that's it's
0: not a limerick poem. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I was like, okay, I like poetry. I can do this. What's I the, do What's too. the limbic system?
1: The limbic system is a deep internal area in the brain where our fight-flight responses come from, where our emotions um, are triggered and. Uh, immediately, we get a neurotransmitter or hormone response. For example, if we're really stressed, then or really anxious, we might get that fight flights okay. response that kicks in. So the and and then we release adrenaline and cortisol and stress hormones, and then that just keeps our body on high stress alert all the time. So part of the mindfulness stuff is it actually calms down, and science is has certainly gone into this that it does help reduce those neurotransmitters that make our physical body really, really anxious and uptight. And look, I suppose the same could be said for serotonin and endorphins and things like this, but it's kind of about just calming that limbic system down so that we can move forward and do what we need to do for ourselves.
0: Nice, Penny. And in what you said earlier, you mentioned the word acceptance and surrender. I underlined those. Those are part of the value bombs that I talked about in episode 52. Great Mm -hmm. stuff. That tells me that you're going to be very successful in sobriety from what I have seen after interviewing the 56th person that I've interviewed. So the limbic system, I'm still going to go ahead with my limerick system of those Irish poems. Okay, sounds good. With (laughs) with the breathing techniques, I'll, I'll also incorporate that into the limbic system and just out of curiosity, what were your drinking habits like before uh, you got sober on the 19th of October in
1: 2015? Well, I was drinking moderately and I was limiting what I had to the weekends where I would only drink a bottle on the weekend. So I'd probably spread that out as much as I could, but I always just wanted more. Yeah. Um, Before that, though, I was drinking—you know—a bottle, two bottles of wine a night, and things just were so unmanageable. And I've had rehab stays and things like that for that. But I kind of thought when I started back, oh, you know, I can do this. I can probably have one or two glasses of wine and be quite okay. I can control this. So it was like that that voice: "Oh, not too good." Well, I, I managed to control it, but. Like I said, I just wanted more and then I was getting really depressed and I could see really clearly that it was affecting my mood and it was also really affecting my relationships with my family and I I knew that day when I sat on that porch crying into my coffee that I really needed to do something about it. And that's when I found the RE podcast. I got straight online to look, look up recovery and, and haven't stopped ever since just researching and looking at everything to do with recovery it's just been awesome
0: yeah and we're so glad to have you in those accountability groups penny you mentioned you successfully moderated at times and there were times myself where i successfully moderated they were fleeting and not long in duration but those times it's exhausting right if you're when you're you're actually successfully moderating your drinking it is exhausting am i right
1: It is absolutely exhausting because you're constantly fighting this voice in your head that says, come on, have some more. You can have another one. It's okay. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter if someone, you know, husband, kids get really angry with me. What does it matter? Fuck it. Do it. (laughs) 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 You know, it's that voice that's there. And by the way, I've named my voice Myrtle because it's a very old fashioned name and I really would like to keep her in the past. Myrtle.
0: Wait, I love it. Yeah, Myrtle. (laughs) Mine's Gary. Myrtle, meet Gary. Gary, Myrtle, you two hang out for the next uh, 25 minutes while Penny and I recover. That's it. (laughs) I love it. Penny, you mentioned the word relationships earlier. Talk to me about how your relationships have improved or, or changed in sobriety.
1: Oh, they're wonderful. Honestly. There isn't the tension there that there was before. There's there's not the arguments or the frustrations or the worry. I I know I worried my husband tremendously through all of this and I think that our communication has re- improved so much and our love for each other just keeps growing and growing and it hasn't been an easy journey for either of us or for the kids, but We're in a really good place and my husband is a remarkable man. I've been so lucky to have him in my life. He really has stuck by me through thick and thin and my absolute rock bottoms and he's seen me at my worst and and he's seen me at my best and he's still been there. So I'm really blessed, really blessed. So I think in terms of all those relationships, there's just so much more understanding of each other and love and compassion and if there if there's something we disagree on well we disagree on it and that's okay you know there doesn't need to be a huge fuss about it like there used to be so yeah and I've also found that in many ways my friendships have changed I've certainly got very close friends who will always be close however it's been wonderful moving into a recovery community as well where there are so many like-minded people and they really understand and there's no judgment and you don't have to explain anything because not everyone gets it.
0: Yeah, not everybody gets it. I do understand that. But like you said, it, it's communal when you work with other alcoholics. You don't have to start from the scratch, like, hey, how many brothers and sisters you have? It's like getting exactly. to know each other. It's just like boom. We are already yeah. <laughs> at this level of deep understanding. And Penny, I'm curious. Can you walk me through a day of recovery in the life of Penny? What does your recovery portfolio consist of today, tomorrow? Does it include maybe a twelve-step program, meeting, meditation? We talked about your breathing techniques. What is a day in the life of Penny look like?
1: Well, my days are very, very full. <laughs> um, usually on my work days, I get up really early and my drive into work is about an hour and a half. Well, it used to be an hour, but the traffic's so bad that it's an hour and a half. But um, so I'm working full time. So that obviously takes a chunk of my day. However, I always listen to podcasts on the way to work, on the way home from work. And so that hour and a half in the car is a great opportunity to to do that. So the podcasts have just been tremendous for me and the accountability groups. And also AA, I go to, I've got a home group and I go there once if I can twice a week, but it's just been once a week at the moment and they are just amazing and I had been to AA previously but I was looking at the differences not the similarities and I thought hell no this is not for me. <laughs>
0: Damn those differences.
1: Yeah but but these guys are just totally awesome and I love being a part of that group and um, so and I've started doing 12-step work with my sponsor who's really not a sponsor but she is kind of thing it's a bit hard to explain but she's a friend of mine who I reached out to four months ago and said right I need to do something about that. So she really took me under her wing and has been beautiful. So, yeah, look, I I suppose it's, it's the little things and just the everyday stuff. I just try to keep it simple and use a lot of mindfulness throughout my whole day. I'll be walking to work from where I've parked the car and I'll notice a beautiful flower that's on a bush or... Um, the way a leaf might fall from a tree and I, that, I know that might sound a bit silly but I just take so much joy in those little things and that's what I look out for. So my day is very mindful and I, I try to practice that, that presence and to stay in the present moment and I definitely do meditate and I use prayer and those kinds of things but probably not in a routine. Schedules for me are really hard to keep because each day is kind of very different depending on what's happening at home and it's hard sometimes to fit that into work but if I've got a spare space I will. So yeah so it's all just for me I suppose just accepting what it is that happens each day and just kind of one day at a time and just surrendering if stuff happens and handing it over to my my higher power, which I I see as not so much religious-based but more of a higher universal energy that's kind of out there. And I've always had a strong spiritual side in that respect. I was very lucky. Mum was a clairvoyant and a shamanic healer, so I've kind of grown up with all that. So I've got a real, I suppose, sense of, of that for me. So anyway, yeah, that's kind of like my days. And then, I look, I get home from work and then it's all chaos with dinner and making lunches for the next day and what have you. But I do try to get to bed at a reasonable time and I love just sitting and that's when I listen to some more podcasts or I might write in my gratitude journal. Gratitude is a big thing for me. I like to hunt the good stuff and, and it, it just bring more joy in. So, yeah.
0: I love it. And talk to me a little bit about what recovery is like in Australia. Maybe is there a stigma? This could be more of a stereotype on my end, but you said traffic yeah. earlier. I'm like, wait, you guys also sit in traffic for, for lot, long, long amounts of time. I thought we were the only crazy <laughs> country to do that here in America. Also crocodile Dundee. That's a stigma or a stereotype. Shall I said I didn't uh. think you guys had free roads. I, I thought you guys just, uh, you know, were like the outback in the bush all, all the time. <laughs>
1: I think in Australia beer is the biggest thing. Like in terms of recovery, in terms of um, alcohol, I think we are a big drinking country and I suppose when I think about it, all the ads on TV, you know, everyone's having a barbecue um, there. It's a beautiful sunny day and there's always alcohol in someone's hand. So recovery in that sense has been been challenging but I don't think it's probably any different from anywhere else really it's we we have some groups that are really advocating recovery beautifully at the moment Uh, one of my girlfriends runs Sydney recovery in Melbourne uh, sorry in Sydney oh gosh and she has a Facebook page and they're working very closely with Reverend Bill Cruz who is runs the Exodus Foundation with the homeless people and with people in addiction and they've actually brought the recovery walk to Sydney. So there's a lot of advocacy that's starting to happen, yeah, and I would love to be more of a part of that. So we're getting there. We may not be as strong with our events here as what you guys are in the States, but I'm hoping we're going to get there.
0: Yeah, and uh, just quick question. So, if you're at a restaurant, you know, past four months ago, maybe you're drinking days, and you're like, "Yeah, I'll take a beer." What kind of beer do they bring you?
1: Oh boy, I reckon they would probably bring you a Corona or VB or Foster's.
0: Foster's. That's the answer I was looking for. <laughs> How do you say yeah. it?
1: Foster's.
0: Foster's. But that's my. Yeah,
1: that's my Aussie accent.
0: <laughs> I get it. Say it one more time. Foster's. Fosters, got it.
1: That's it. Nailed Beautiful. It.
0: Fa- <laughs> Fosters, got it. They're going to stop right there because I'm not even going to say it again because I got it nailed it for everybody to hear. Fosters, got it. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the recovery walk. I just found out a couple days ago uh, there's so much on my plate, right? And I had, a, I had a lunch with a coworker, and she was like, you got to start saying no, Paul, because I've got this podcast that takes about 20 to 30 hours a week, which I love doing, and I'm never going to give that up. But she's like, you know what? You got to start saying no to things. And no joke, 20 minutes later, I got a call from somebody asking if we could donate services. And I'm like, well, what's, uh, what's the run for, you know, trying to think of like an easy way to like say no. And um, they're like, oh, it's a recovery run. And I'm like, damn it, I'm in. Full in. How can I help out? Um, Good
1: on you. <laughs> yeah. And
0: so I'm excited that these runs and these public events are going to be taking place this one's in bozeman montana it's coming up i think may 21st and i'm, gonna be, I'm actually going to be talking for a little bit i think four or five minutes at the event just about recovery in general so it is really cool that uh, you guys are starting to have that in sydney as well and hell so are we in the small town of bozeman montana and and penny we have reached the rapid fire round if you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds that would be great are you ready
1: i'm ready <laughs>
0: number one penny what was your worst memory from drinking
1: I would say the arguments at home um, that my children witnessed. Yeah. Hmm.
0: And number two, mm-hmm. we've all heard that aha moment from a brilliant inventor. What was your oh shit moment when you realized like, oh, I can't control this?
1: Oh, when I became aware that moderating my drinking just left me wanting more and feeling Angry about that, resentful about that, and feeling as miserable as hell. So yeah,
0: <laughs> that sounds exhausting. Like we talked about earlier. Number yeah. three, Penny, you've got four months and about a week. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward?
1: Oh, I'm I'm just so excited to be to be moving forward with it all and to just keep learning and. Um, growing and being of service to others and I as you probably know I started a Facebook page in Sydney it's called Recovery Buddha and it's an accountability group here and for anyone and I, I just felt I really needed to do something to be accountable and you your example has just been tremendous in giving me the courage to do something like that and just just to keep growing and learning there is just so much more that i want to experience in life and to bring the joy back to bring the laughter back and that's where i want to move forward in those areas that is a
0: damn good plan penny yeah did you say recovery border or recovery buddha
1: um recovery buddha yes
0: okay so if people in in australia or is it a regional thing or they just facebook uh recovery buddha and they can find it yeah you?
1: it's just a facebook page yep
0: okay love it love it and uh, number four penny what's your favorite resource in recovery it could be a book an app a 12-step program let's hear it
1: definitely the re podcasts and Omar's Share Podcasts and Shane's Sober Guy, I just love them, absolutely love them. And what that's done for me personally is made me not feel so alone and, and given me a sense of belonging and community. And I, I really needed that because I drank in isolation at home. <laughs> so being a part of a community I think is just so important. So definitely the podcasts, the accountability groups and AA.
0: Love it. Penny, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received?
1: Hmm, probably the, the slogans. Not that I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of AA, but I love the slogans because I think they're life lessons. Like easy does it, keep it simple. One day at a time. You know, yep. my, my head races it races all the time and I forget and I have to remind myself to just take it one day at a time. So yeah.
0: You hear that Myrtle? Penny's taking it one day at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Penny, last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in early recovery or thinking about quitting drinking?
1: Well, I can probably think of two. One would be we only heal through connection. So stay connected with people in sobriety and in recovery in whichever way that works for you, whether it's through accountability groups, through AA, through smart recovery, through anything. And the other is expect a miracle because in sobriety you'll find joy, you'll laugh again, you'll heal relationships, and you start to develop a loving kindness and compassion for yourself that you can share and pass on to others. And I think that's really special.
0: I love it, Penny. And before we go, please give listeners your own (laughs) personalized, you might be an alcoholic if line.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) When I first met my husband, he had a wedding car company and he picked a girlfriend and I up from the airport in one of the cars Anyway, we were absolutely loaded. We'd been drinking all afternoon. We drank on the plane on the way up from Melbourne and we, we were gone. But anyway, I, I think you might be an alcoholic if you agree and you've never driven while you've been drunk before or you've never driven a, a vintage car. You might be an alcoholic if you still agree to drive while absolutely shift-faced, a Rolls Royce around the block several times while your partner picks up more booze and groceries.
0: Oh, wow. That's incredible. I love it. Penny, <laughs> thank you so much for helping me stay sober. Keep doing what you're doing in those groups. I love the videos. I love the inspiration. You're a leader for all of us. Thank you so much, Penny, for joining us oh, today.
1: Oh, bless you, Paul. Thank you for having me. You, you absolutely rock. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you.
0: Recovery Elevator, check out the forum. It's community.recoveryelevator.com. Don't put www in front of it because you're not gonna get there for some reason. community.recoveryelevator.com. It's a totally different platform than the Facebook groups. More of a discussion. You can get lost in there with just reading all the posts. You've gotta create a username and password to enter so it's private. People on the outside can't see what's being posted. There is a wealth of knowledge in there. I am in there daily conversing. It's a great resource. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down. You gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.